For thousands of years, civilization has been a destructive force, both ecologically and socially. In the midst of the sixth extinction, the future of humanity and our other-than-human kin hangs by a thread. At this pivotal moment in time, we must reach back into the depths of the human story and uncover our mistakes. There is still time to reconnect with what we have lost, to restore our broken relationship to the land where we dwell, and to remember the human place in the wild. Hello, and welcome to the Rewilding Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Michael Bauer. This podcast is produced and made possible from supporters on Patreon. Thank you. If the Rewilding Podcast inspires you, gives you hope, or makes you think, please subscribe, share it on social media, and become a patron at patreon.com slash Bauer. If you're new to rewilding and want to expand your perception of it, I recommend attending one of my rewilding one-on-one workshops, which I offer both in person in Portland, Oregon, and online for those who live around the world via Zoom. You can check upcoming dates and register at rewildportland.com. Cityscapes are perhaps the most decimated and human-centric habitats in today's world. These landscapes are in need of thoughtful rewilding. Cities are some of the most domesticated places, but also positioned in some of the most historically fertile places. Cities were built where they are because these places had access to a diverse array of resources. Many think rewilding means running away to the wilderness, but that's not the case. For one, this is not a practical reality for most people. Two, because of their prime location and social capital, cities are both ripe for and in desperate need of rewilding. Permaculture, with its inspiration and core principles deriving from more regenerative, sedentary, delayed return societies, such as indigenous horticulture, can be an effective tool for the urban rewilder. Using permaculture for placemaking, becoming a part of your place, is a great way to start this journey. To talk with me about this today is Mark Lakeman. Mark is the founder of the nonprofit placemaking movement and organization known as the City Repair Project. He is also principal and design director of the community architecture and planning firm Communitecture. He is an urban placemaker and permaculture designer, community design facilitator, and an inspiring catalyst in his very active commitment to the emergence of sustainable cultural landscapes everywhere. Every design project he's involved with furthers the development of a beneficial vision for human and ecological communities. Whether this involves urban design and placemaking, permaculture, and ecological building, encouraging community interaction, or assists those typically who do not have access to design services, Mark's leadership has benefited communities across the North American continent. Mark, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, Peter. It's great to be with you. <laughs> um, yeah, I just wanted to start out and ask you, you know, when and how did you get involved in permaculture? Yeah, well, I think I was involved in it before I heard the word. Mm. Um, Let's see, I was, I think the, fir the first way that I experienced it was uh, at the, kind of during the culmination of, of a long period of travel after I had left my corporate architecture um, mm -hmm. series of jobs in the late 80s. And I found, I was so upset. Um, I was in a firm where I, I had uh, been working on the Bank of America building at the West End of the Morrison Bridge, and during a the final meeting of my involvement in the in the, in that project and in the firm, because I was about to quit and I didn't even know it, but um, people were laughing about how uh, we had just essentially paid off government inspectors to allow the toxicity to remain um, on site, 
And and after the after the officials left, um, people were laughing, and I was so upset at um, at 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 how it wasn't so. I mean, I was upset at the at the cover up, but what I was more upset about was that everyone felt safe to just laugh about breaking the law. And uh, I realized at that point that the profession I was a part of had some pervasive problems. Um, that I didn't want to be a part of, that there was a cultural rot. And of course, that building sits right on the edge of the Willamette River on the bank, the West Bank, and uh, which means that all of that toxicity is leaching Mm. into the Willamette River and therefore into the fish that we eat, and therefore into the whole ecosystem of our region and beyond. So I quit that day. And uh, about seven years later, I was in the Lacandone rainforest in Chiapas, just at the onset of the Zapatista uprising. And I was able, for for various reasons, I was able to move in and out of government lines and the Zapatista lines because I had the endorsement of a specific, really cool organization that everybody respects there. But I was there to see what people are like after after that that cover-up and that kind of betrayal in the design culture I found myself asking what what would people actually be like because I don't think I'm seeing it. I don't think I can discover it here in Portland, Oregon. And I was wrong, you know, spending in an afternoon with a really healthy grandmother would show you. But I I had to go far and wide, travel vast distances in order to really truly come home in some ways for the first time. But it was in the Lockendone rainforest getting to spend um, a long period of time with Lacandone Maya people that I finally, that I did experience permaculture. And of course, you know, the famous three sisters of squash, beans, and corn are a form of permaculture, but the way that they, they plant perpetu- with perpetual abundance in thin rainforest soil. Um, and then, I mean, you know, that's, that's what a permaculturist would look at, but as an architect, um, like deeply interested in a culture of participation and a culture of of place because I'd studied settlement patterns. So I knew that, that cultures that root in and persist over time are very different than imposed colonies such as mm. Portland. So I was there to see, like I was there to observe settlement patterns. And frankly, reading in a, about it in a book doesn't teach you what you actually feel and, and, and like what you make friends I mean, I'll I'll close down this answer because I could go on and on. <laughs> no, forever. that's great. But I think I saw permaculture when I saw, like, unlike my own experience, I saw children not leaving every day to leave their mentors to go off and be educated according to some, you know, uh, imposed curriculum. I didn't see the displacement or the dissipation of the family unit every day. I saw it integral, and I saw parents and children. Um, it's, it's, it's almost painful to think it's so beautiful. It's almost painful to remember right now mm. how heartily the father would laugh at the jokes of the children. I mean, literally fall on the ground and how, how the, the, the mutual respect, mm. how brilliant and bright the children were, how versed, I mean, I could ask the youngest child, almost any question about the phonology of, of where they were. And they could they could answer with an int they could give me an integrated answer of 
like how that plant would bloom at a certain point and how it would trigger their understanding that another phase was happening mm. and how their life as a village related to that, to those integrated effects. Yeah, I, I mean, I got to ask those questions and I got to get those answers and I got to be blown away at how strong and resilient and creative and yet childlike children can be um, when they live in a place-based community. So I got to, before I ever heard the word permaculture, I actually got to be in a permaculture. Um, and that was, that was that was really the beginning for me. I was looking for an alternative reality that would help me understand humanity better than I knew I could while living in a colonial settlement in the Western part of this continent called Portland. Yeah. So then, you know, did you have a kind of culture shock coming back to Portland and, and what was the sort of like impetus to start doing permaculture? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, big culture shock. Um, so I've been gone visiting villages for seven years. And what 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 happened to bring me to a place of, well, I, a lot of personal patterns, perceptual patterns changed for me so that when I came back, I would be shocked. Mm. But I was also equipped um, to be able to re-engage. And I didn't really understand that. Um, because I came back with more empathy for people. Mm. But I had been in all these places where people weren't desperate to be heard. Like when I got back here, part of the isolation was to, to finally hear in my in the voices of my own friends, this desperation to be listened to, to be heard, and the inability to actually listen to each other. So going to a cafe with my old friends, you know, for a decade or more, listening, I, I could actually hear them now. I could hear that none of them were listening to each other and they were all waiting to tell their story and none of their stories, like their best story, their favorite story, the one that they told so many times they didn't even know it would just be deflected as a person was waiting to tell their story. So, um, yeah, so so I was seeing that and hearing that. And also, especially in the Lock and Down Rainforest, I was coached. I actually, I had brushed up on Spanish in order to be able to, speak with them who speak Spanish as a second language as well. And uh, so I was coached by them to like, never say violent words. Hmm. It, it, what it does to you internally, it, like, essentially they were saying it truncates your, cre your access to your own creativity. It blunts your perception and it, it hurts your access to the surface area of your senses to speak with violence. And, and, and of course, to be self-conscious and to be really outside of yourself, to be worried about what other people think of you, to project on other people, like, you know, puts a curtain in front of, between your soul and your senses. So I was coached about that. And uh, that helped me. I mean, I became so much more conscious in a quiet way, in a thoughtless way. Um, and I could see that my friends were outside of themselves. So it was really upsetting but Peter, when I'm like the most upsetting things for me were also the most inspiring things at once, like in the Lock and Down Forest. I mean, we're talking about people that these were the Lock and Down are made up of all of these different refugees that found each other in the forest as they were hiding from the Spanish. And then the Lock and Down became mm. this group. 
but it was fundamentally made up of people that had been fleeing and kind of came, they came together and they were about 5,000 strong um, less than a hundred years ago. And then they were decimated once um, Europeans finally contacted them in the forest down to about 120 people when I visited. And of course, like there I am visiting, but by that time, apparently they had become um, more resilient thanks to the um, genetics of one particular person. Um, every every descendant of his would not die. Wow. So the village, the village was largely made up of him. And uh, and then he had many wives in order to not be um, kind of breeding within closed loops mm -hmm. too much. That's fascinating. Anyway, <laughs> wow. Most, the most amazing thing, Peter, was, uh, and I didn't know how to, I didn't know what I was experiencing at the time, you know, until I got back and I got, you know, became an activist and I was in like, all these different circumstances, like with Robert's rules of order and consensus. Mm -hmm. and um, what I experienced in the rainforest is this whole other level of um, making decisions based on like continuity of relationship over time and affinity, identity, uh, so that when people come together, they already know each other so well, and they are they're already part of a culture that might even never never even have to say this to their children, but like everyone is on the edge of the whole. And they are and all that they would do in meetings is communicate so that everyone could hear, and then everyone on the perimeter would act on behalf. It was like ultimate anarchism in the most beautiful way. Everyone was part of. Uh, a greater whole and they all understood that and they would all act on behalf of what everyone else had said i saw two community meetings based on inspired by crises and in both cases um people would turn to me after it was done because i'm just sitting there like what just happened and they're like oh right okay so <laughs> they just heard what everyone said and now they're going to go use their own judgment to act on behalf of what everyone has said and it's up to them to organize in their own values and sense how to represent because they're always going to act on behalf of everyone. Mm -hmm. Nobody gets to control anybody. And so we're all stronger because of that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, as I talk about it right now, I'm like, ah, oh God, <laughs> can we ever get there please, yeah. in our lives? Mm -hmm. It's a thing that people like people sit there, I got sociocracy, I went to the workshop, I'm armed up, I know how to be functional now. No, you don't. Mm -hmm. you, we're taking baby steps with mm -hmm. stuff like that mm -hmm. compared to what it's like when people live in an, in an integration of living and working and playing and artistic expression and all the things they do to meet their needs, all part of one group of people who all know each other and each other's stories and skills and names and talents. And then, and like, like, once you're there, then how do you make decisions? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, totally. That's awesome. What the culture what shock was coming back. Into <laughs> yeah. That. Yeah. So from there, um, well, I mean, I, the next question I have is, you know, maybe you can relate it in terms of your story as well. What is placemaking and how does it relate to permaculture and how did you get into that once you were here back again yeah 
You know, I pro every time I talk about this, I probably have a different answer because I keep yeah. learning more. <laughs> but I would say permaculture and placemaking are really essentially the same thing. It's just that, uh, well, they're the same thing in the sense that um, that permaculture's urge is to engender mutually beneficial relationships. And there's much more technical sort of sweeping definitions like it's a design system for human settlements to be able to be perpetually, you know, resilient. And, uh, you know, everyone's got a different definition that they like. For me, it's much more basic than that. It's and it's coming from a, a colonial context of isolation and separation. So for me, uh, I really I really um, identify with and emphasize the uh, the urge to connect and relate into wholes to more of a holistic mutual benefit. Um, so that's what permaculture is. And then placemaking, you know, it's not the same answer depending on, on where you are in the world. Uh, like if we were to be somewhere, you know, in a village where where they have this robust um, geomorphic settlement, which is really where the settlement patterns of a village emerge from the people in response to climate and and natural conditions. So the the settlement is actually an expression of of human problem solving and then an artistic expression that comes out of that. Um, you know that that uh, that's what is more in, in, inherent when we're not within imposed hierarchies like we are. Um, and okay, that's a bunch of words, but let's contrast it with where we are, like where where we find ourselves, especially west of the Ohio River, um, are in these imposed systems that uh, are 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 basically drawn abstractly on paper. And then, well, first they're drawn as as policy, um, like we will go forth and quell the native people and take their land dishonestly. Um, so there's documents that we don't even get to see and there's conversations we never get to hear about how that happens. But as that process, that violent process is enacted and immoral, unethical process is enacted, then systems are imposed based on paper based on the largely in our in our in our context in the USA the national land ordinance of 1785 which was when um roman colonialism was codified to be imposed over the entire entirety of the USA um in fact it's it needs to be said to every kindergartner that the entirety of as much as 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 the western hemisphere has been able to be colonized with some places that are outstanding exceptions um Roman colonialism has been cast over all of it. Um, you know, if you haven't been able to get to certain Eskimo populations or the Yanomamo in Brazil, uh, it's just because we haven't arrived there. But on paper, on, by policy and literally on maps, the grid has been imposed and then it just hasn't been implemented yet. But that's the plan to supplant all indigenous culture and replace it with basically a formulation that commodifies time, space, and life into an interchangeable system, um, you know, that's driven and results, driven by and results in hierarchies and concentrations of power. So placemaking in our context is really different than a, a, the context of a child uh, that grows up in, a, in, an, in an indigenous village. It was explained to me 
by Warm Springs elder, actually, who was talking about their ancestral culture. He said, our economy and our ecology are inseparable and we're not very different than you guys. It's just that everything we do is driven by one question, which is like, how are we gonna engage our kids today? How are we gonna grow up our kids? And then the ecology, like the way that we in, interact with the, the larger ecology and the other families of the tree of life and how we organize, how we're gonna get things done and bring home you know, food is organized essentially on how we mentor our children because we're not going to do anything that contradicts the best way to raise them. Um, and, and he's like, you guys aren't really that different. We all kind of do stuff during the day and we all have to persist and have shelter. But you're not you're not impelled by that question. You're, you're directed by external um, forces that supplant your judgment and your relationship to place. So, so a, a child that grows up in a village that is infused with place and participation gets to inhabit placemaking as an inherent process and as a birthright that doesn't even necessarily need to be conscious. They just get to experience the benefit of looking everywhere and not seeing contradictions and experiencing continuous alienation. But for us in the colonial grid, um, you know, for thousands of years, like my ancestors were conquered about uh, 2,300 years ago by Romans invading Celts in the, uh, in so what's now called the British Islands in Wales and parts of Ireland, um, but mostly Wales and England and Scotland, parts of Scotland. Um, anyway, for us, it's a retrofit process. That's the simple answer. Placemaking for us is a retrofit where we look around, hopefully you get conscious and you're like, holy smokes, in the ne entire neighborhood where I live has nothing. Like the first thing that might occur to you is like, oh, there's no public square at all. How interesting, you know? And apologists for that will be like, especially religious, uh, like people with religious orientations will say, well, you know, it takes a long time to get around to make culture. No, it doesn't. It's the first thing we do. It's the, that cross, the crossroads is the first thing that happens. We actually arrive at a crossroads where there's propitious conditions and water and some kind of orientation that's very attractive. And, and there we want to settle. As you were saying, Peter, um, usually colonial settlements happen on pre-existing villages because that's the best place to be, you know, close to water, um, available sunlight, uh, lots of game and lots of resources around you know, and, and, and other reasons. So for us, though, um, you know, we live in basically a giant investment system. That's 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 the nature of the United States basically laid out in order for people to go forth and, and expand westward and exploit, exploit um, natural resources and, and then conscript people as part of a working class into doing that extraction. And then the process, you know, results in, in further enriching the wealthy and powerful, while the rest of us toil. So, you know, so we just wake up, our children just grow up in that thinking that's normal. Mm -hmm. But, you know, eventually you might notice that you're frustrated, always feeling powerless, even though you live in a neighborhood with all these other people that feel powerless. And because the exa examples of actual villages where people are powerful, 
are missing everywhere. They've been erased. Then you just go on with your life feeling frustrated and, and everybody knows that there's something wrong. Liberals, progressives, conservatives, <laughs> everybody can agree that something's wrong. They just can't agree on what it is because they have different information. But yeah, for us, placemaking, let's see. You, you organize children, you have a little fundraiser, and then you or, you know you get a bench, you build a bench and it's a big deal. In an African village, they could wake up in the morning and say, you know what, we ought to have a bench over there. After all, <clears throat> the grandmothers, we have a song that says, everywhere you, everywhere you have a grandmother and where she has to go to get her bread, she needs at least three places to sit. And we've discovered a grandmother that doesn't have three. She only has two seats between you know, here and there. So we've got to get the kids out of bed, build a bench today, today, you know, and you're done. No <laughs> yeah. fundraising, no right. permission, no city authorities. So I, 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 I guess because I'm on a roll, I want to just say a couple more things. <laughs> if you can see that the public space is basically missing, you can also see that it's there. And we've been convinced that we're powerless in the space between our homes that really otherwise for thousands of years used to bring us together like hundreds of thousands of years, that space was a commons. So if you can realize that, then you can go, aha. Well, then if, 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 if you can, if you can realize that, then you can realize that there was a time, the good old days perhaps before we were convinced that we were powerless when we did have power and maybe you can just decide to be powerful. That's how the city repair movement really began. It was just deciding that we had our power and that nobody was more powerful than than we are where we live. Um, so we retrofit. I got yeah. a lot of coaching. I got a lot of coaching to do this. Like, <laughs> oh, you want to subvert the colonial grid? Go to the closest freaking crossroads and show everybody across the freaking grid that this is how you change. This is how you address colonialism. Go straight to the crossroads right where you live transform it back into a place that brings people together and then boom, 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 boom. It'll happen across the planet. That's the plan. So we're trying to be villagers within the colonial grid. So placemaking seems innocuous, like, yeah, oh, let's bring some children together and do some ecological construction. But when you do it out in public space, you're challenging, I think, almost everything. Um, you know, and then suddenly you're bringing the bureaucracies and the political leadership into this into the conversation because they're the administrators of everyone's public mm -hmm. space. So when you bring them into the conversation, suddenly they're face to face with the absurdity of the system that they administrate. And the more you relate to them as people, like that's the secret superpower is world. This is actually this was literally coached to me, Peter. This man Elk River, who helped start uh, City Repair, is Cheyenne. He said. Okay, just see this. Everyone's on the same side. You, even when you're sitting there with a line across between you and these people who think you're they're your enemy, you know there is no line and you're all on the same side. And when you speak from there, from your ancient villager self to theirs, you'll choose different words and you'll use a different voice that they will hear somewhere inside. Mm -hmm. And that's how City Repair got rolling. It's exactly like Obi-Wan saying, you know, <laughs> these aren't the droids you're looking for. Yeah. And they're like, no, nah, these aren't the droids. It's that power. Mm -hmm. um, there's a couple of things that you're making me think of. One is, you know, when you were saying that 
that, you know, you were isolated in our neighborhoods and we're, you know, um, thinking like, where is the, the square for us to come together? The, the commons in a sense, I think most people don't even think that I think most people don't even know that they're there should be or was or ever could be, you know, I think there's just that, that level of disconnection. So I think part of what you, you do as well is communicate the need for that shared space. Um, there's, and then the other thing that you said too, um, in regards to like villagers, just getting up and waking up and building this thing makes me think of, there's like a David Graeber quote where he says something like, you know, I can't, I'm going to butcher it because I can't fully remember it. But essentially, like you shouldn't ask for permission to do something. You just build it and dare dare the authorities to like do anything about it. There was this group, uh, a friend of mine long ago, um, there were some white supremacists who had painted um, some, you know, neo-Nazi symbols on a crosswalk on Powell Boulevard here in Portland. And they saw those and, you know, had reported it to the city. The city was not painting over them so these symbols are just staying there and they're like you know what we're gonna like paint over these so they went and they bought a bunch of different like street paints and they painted a rainbow crosswalk (laughs) and they got caught in the middle of it by the authorities and they were um tried for graffiti for like illegal graffiti and they had to do community service and so for their community service, they volunteered with the city repair project painting intersections. <laughs> and I just think that that's like such a good example of like, you know, kind of doing something without asking. And then also there, you know, you can do both things, right? There's like, there's this organization that's actually has the permission to do it. Um, and you can, you can end up doing both elements if you want. And I'm not advocating anybody break the law, of course. Um <laughs> But, you know, there's this there's a drive to just like make something happen. Like those symbols needed to get painted over and the city wasn't doing it fast enough. Um, yeah. So they took matters into their own hands to do it. Um, and I think that that's an important element of, you know, direct action in that sense. And then it's also cool that they were able to then integrate the same kind of philosophy in a more structured um, uh, way with permission with city repair. Anyway, you know, it's really interesting, Peter. Um Early on in our relationship with the city, uh, different kinds of things would be done of a, of a guerrilla nature that were inspired by the, our activities. Mm. Sometimes I would get a call, like somebody somebody routed out concrete in a sidewalk and installed these beautiful mosaic uh, designs. And the city said, all right, well, um, we'll call Mark Lakeman. And if, it's, if he's okay <laughs> with this, then we'll just let it go. Wow. So I'm sitting there like... I, I issued a, a letter. I was like, this is wonderful. And Peabot was, okay, this is cool then. We'll let it happen. Uh, some Oftentimes, the things that you think are manifestly obvious, um, there's so many people that have been cowed by their uh, their experience of growing up in this culture where you have to seek consent to use your judgment, um, where, yeah, they were just encountering absurdity as a daily experience this this dissonance we're constantly interacting with yeah um but you know i want to say i love all of those things i love people the the main thing i'm asking people to do when i'm going around you know talking and stuff is i'm asking people to authorize themselves you know if you want to call yourself a placemaker or a villager or an urban permaculturist or a rewilder what what have you like i hope people find that um 
that confidence and that assurance or actually rec- realize that they have this birthright to be a, a like the earth is your freaking home and you're living within a system of just like structural injustice. And the only way to change it is to be yourself, mm. you know, and then like, you don't know, like when, you know what, mm-hmm. in the lock and down rainforest, this person is like, you know, we're having all these conversations. And at one point this guy says, they were describing all these changes that would happen in the world that they could foresee. And I was like, Oh my God, how, how will this happen? How can I contribute to these changes? Cause they were talking about placemaking as a catalyst for change. They were like, well, all these things are going to happen. I mean, painting intersections, Peter, quite honestly, um, I was like, they said that we were going to do this and now we're about to do it. Like how in the world, mm. They're, they're Mayan, you know, there's all these mm-hmm. things that people project onto Mayan people, all oh, their mystical floating around in the rainforest. Um, there are things about them which are completely impossible for me to understand or explain that I experienced, but they literally were talking about how we would start to do these things. And, you know, I actually, if you just knew enough about community and culture, you could project that in the process of healing, there's lots of things that we would do mm-hmm. as we're like grasping in the dark, trying mm-hmm. to find our way back to our senses. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I think placemaking is. Yeah. And if you ask me my real feelings, like it's absolute rank, violent, unjust bullshit that nobody should abide. Like if transportation officials say to you, no, don't mess with the streets, you must mess with the streets. <laughs> Those officials must stop. Mm-hmm being divorced from their own sense of humanity mm-hmm. they need to do more reading or research or something to realize uh that there are administrators of, of of isolation uh like when they're like you know cars must get through they don't they've never they've never been helped to understand that the that the paradigm of an american having to go from a to b as their reality and traverse through everyone else's sense of place and that that has primacy over the safety and security of children within that network, like mm-hmm. that hasn't occurred to them. And then fundamentally, it hasn't occurred to them that there's some insanity happening that would make you get in a car and go all the way over here to meet a need that you could meet over mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. So we're all in this crazy cloud of de- of of, of uh, delusion in a way. Um, you could be meeting your needs locally and at the end of the day have all spectrums of capital having been enriched instead of just money and mm-hmm. getting a sandwich or whatever you're doing. Um, it's so much deeper. The issues are so much deeper than they, than they, than they've been helped to see. Um, so I have a, another question, which is, you know, years ago I heard of Christopher Alexander's book, a pattern language. And I remember a friend of mine was sort of obsessed with it and one of the things he was talking about, I had never really understood environmental psychology or how the environment might affect, you know, social human biology, that kind of stuff. Um, and one of the, one of the patterns that they were talking about in that book is that in some of these indigenous villages they had studied, they would have like huts that were all in a big circle. And each, even though each person had like their individual hut, all of the doors faced to the center. And so you could like look out your door and see into other people's huts or whatever. Right. And so like it made this sort of, um, I don't know if accountability, I hate the way the word accountability is in these days, but I feel like when you're, 
um, on display, you kind of have more of a responsibility to act in a, in a more collaborative way. And they noticed that when villages started facing their doors outward in other ways where they weren't visible, that's when they started to see more conflict arising between people. Um, and so I just, you know, I'm fascinated by this idea of, of, of how phys- uh, physical material world patterns and buildings and design can affect our psychology. And I'm wondering like, if you have any examples of those kinds of patterns that you like to implement when you're doing placemaking projects. Thank you. Yeah, great question. Well, first I wanna say about uh, Christopher Alexander's um, pattern language and, and relate that to permaculture, that what's so exciting about permaculture and what pattern language did for people all over the world was basically decentralize a language and make it available and accessible to people that would enable them to um, not just modify their own their own environment, but to communicate with other people um, a kind of a set of ethics, values, and strategies and patterns that they could employ, and then they could relate to each other, and then that, and then therefore they could share it. Therefore, it could become both local and local and global at the same time. So, um, just truly beautiful, and uh, both of them kind of eschewed or deflected by professional design culture. And I'm going to digress into that. <laughs> that that design culture doesn't realize that itself is an expression of of, of colonial structure to professionalize design and to make it so inaccessible e- economically is a form of social injustice. There are tremendous barriers. And actually architects walk around like wearing that as a badge. Like Mm -hmm. I work for rich people. I do Mm -hmm. big expensive houses. And I'm like, yeah, that you never have, you never get to sleep in. Mm -hmm. You never get a set of keys. Mm -hmm. And they barely, like they disdain you because you're not rich enough, you Mm -hmm. fool. Um, (laughs) Okay, so about design strategies. Well, I'm glad that you, you, you just put it the way you did. Um, villages like the one you're talking about, and I can think of many different examples uh, in different cultures across time and across the world, where people basically express their their cultural ethos physically. So for the native culture to say, the teepee, for instance, has been explained to me, or my, I referred to Elk River. He said, the teepee is a circle, because our whole conception of our society is a circle. Um, We notice, because we're paying attention, that everything is spherical, circular, and cyclical, that that's the theme that permeates the universe. So for us, the teepee is is kind of a cosmological expression. It's talking about wholeness. It's talking about inclusivity. And ultimately, it all comes back to this point of beginning that that permeates all through time of a great mother, of a great, like, you know, regenerative presence mm. of a cyclical birthing kind of thing. And the teepee set tells us about that. It's the great hoop, freaking hoop. It's, it's it, you know, so he's like, the teepee is a manifestation of the hoop. We're living in it. Okay, well, well, villages like the one you're referring to, where people are looking into the center, they're on the perimeter, so they're, they're defining it. They're talking about how everyone makes up the total. They're they're making up the whole. So everyone gets to be have a have a place on the edge of the whole. And then the the middle, which is formed 
it's defined and animated by the edges of personal and private space um, is a great open space for just constant interaction, co-creativity, but it's, it's not made of anything. It's just openness that, um, that everyone can, can be part of, um, but it's changing constantly. And so, but it's, what's really, what's really powerful is realize when you're seeing those expressions of wholeness, whether it's, um, like a, a village in Nigeria that would be doing that kind of thing, or like an Italian hill town that's punctuated by gathering places that happen right there, um, that are defined and animated around the edges. Um, everything seems to be growing right out of the rock, but it's kind of aimed at the sun to catch it. It's doing the same thing. People are, they're going to a place where all the action is happening because everyone's bumping into each other there. And they're wanting to be part of that action. They want to look down on it and they want to go out and be in it. And it's it's kind of all over the village as a pattern. Um, they're looking into it because that's that's where, you know, that's shape right. That is actually what Shakespeare's talking about, about the theater of life. And you know, all the world is a stage, that the piazza is is the stage. So my favorite design pattern is actually to bring that back into the colonial reality. Notice all across the freaking landmass on every single block, everyone looks away from the center. We are literally designed to look away. Like anybody who's listening to this, I hope you get this. Um, somebody long ago, before even the Continental Congress blueprinted this, like in Roman colonialism, they decided to invert all forms of village patterns that create cohesion and continuity and invert them as much as possible. Um, so whereas in a village you look internally, like the block becomes a, a cellular structure that is unifying. And there's many of those cellular structures. And in between the cellular structures, there's all these crossroads where the cellular structures then interact with each other. And that's like, this overall design pattern that is the essential village of human freaking kind on planet earth. And then along comes like these these dominating cultures that decide that no, and they and they watch carefully like this is how these guys lived and we can't let them live like this anymore. So where pathways converge, we will nullify it and make it a traffic corridor. There won't be any. In fact, notice that in the grid, you, all you get are sharp corners. So there's never a nestling effect that causes people to slow and eddy and interact. There's just sharp corners that nullify place. Like we're living in an anti-placemaking kind mm -hmm. of construct. Mm -hmm. And then people are looking out from centers and centers aren't even allowed, they're disallowed. The entire block is cut up into privatized parcels. And people should ask themselves if they read a freaking book about village design, like within what's called the insulae of the grid, you know, otherwise villagers have open spaces like courtyards and internal like community spaces that are out exterior and interior spaces. And they're kind of all over the place. And the more you have those, the lower your crime statistics are right. and the higher your public health indicators are. But in our reality, the entirety of a community infrastructure of place is missing because, you know, whether you're whatever i mean most neighborhoods of portland oregon are named after developers mm -hmm. they're like i know i'll name it after myself <laughs> and i'll build you know 450 houses here and sell it all off it won't be a single park public square it'll be a food desert 
It'll just be housing, because after all, this is the working class. We can't have them gathering and having ideas. We've got to have them nuclearized within nuclearized rituals and inverted cultural festivals like Easter is now about rabbits and, uh, you know, no longer about fertility. Anyway, mm. you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> so, um. I guess what I'm what I'm kind of getting at is like I read in one of your reports once that um, when you paint an intersection, it causes drivers to slow down when they're driving through the intersection. I believe I read that, <laughs> um, and so in in a sense, you know, like that's one of the impetuses to create a mosaic of a painted intersection is to slow drivers. But there's like multiple things that are happening simultaneously. And one of the things that I think about too is, um, you know, Martine Prechtel, one of my influences, who's um, Canadian native, uh, raised on the Navajo reservation, lived with the Mayans for a decade, is a famous writer, author. He talks about his experience with the Mayans and how what created in part their communities was the fact that the roofs of their houses were built out of natural fiber that decomposed over the span of the year. And so every couple of weeks, they'd have to have a collective neighborhood party, essentially, where they would go house to house every couple of weeks and build a new roof for each of the houses. And they had to have everybody do it because it took a lot of effort um, and the materials would decompose over time. Well, when the government came in and um, you know built solid roofing with tin and stuff like that, there was no more reason for the communities to have these sort of, you know, uh, barn raising, so to speak, uh, you know, roof, roof raising regular parties. And that was one of the demise, you know, that led to the demise of the community connections. And so when I think about um, the painting of intersections, obviously there's a lot more that goes on with city repair, but as a, as one of the elements of the village building convergence, I think about that, that need to come together to do a thing and how every year those intersections need to get repainted. And so there's these, there's these parties where people are coming back together and it's just like an opportunity for people in the neighborhood to come together again and have a block party. And it's doing something like slowing down traffic, which everybody can probably get behind, especially in terms of, you know, thinking about children and, and play outside. Not that a lot of kids even play outside anymore due to computers and things, but, you know, that's another interrelated challenge that we have at the moment. Um, yeah. Anyway, I'm, so I'm just thinking about like the different kinds of psychological patterns and is there, are there more than that? You know, what are some other ones that, that would um, influence people in terms of getting them to connect? Yeah. Well, thanks for, for, for touching on that. Um, I think for so many people that are struggling, I mean, what it, once they discover that you can constructively engage uh, and not just resist, but actually create cultural patterns. Um, so many of us get stuck in just building, mm. but how rare it is to actually inhabit what we build mm. inhabit it long enough then you can actually start to have more insights on a in, in terms of social architecture and 
cyclical, uh, seasonal, you know, as I, I used the word phen- phenological earlier, mm-hmm. the phenology of our behavior um, in, in the space that we've been working so hard to create uh, includes rituals. Um, and, and like when we say ritual, a lot of people are like, oh, candles, right? And chanting. <laughs> uh, yeah, that gets to be part of it sometimes. But uh, in the most basic sense, ritual uh, is people getting together to do things that uh, just meet basic needs, like the barn raising, you know, is is so symbolic of people coming together and doing something tremendous. <laughs> but that tremendous thing, everybody agrees it needs to be done. Like we need a freaking new barn, you know, we got to have people out there working in the rain, getting things ready for the community uh, in that window of time between the cold and the the hot when other things have to happen at the you know sometime during spring it's just good the weather's just good enough for us to be able to get in a barn raising but that barn raising is a pulse it brings people together and into a unifying focus and then all this dancing and music and food happens um cuz you know you lay down your tools at the end of the day and it's not just the barn raising like there's all these children being watched there's all this planning being done, logistical support happening. Like everybody in the village has a role in the barn raising. And it's more than just driving pigs, you know, it's uh, it's so much more. And then there's, there's all these people making food to feed the people that are building. That's the barn raising. That's at least as much the mm-hmm. barn raising as the actual barn. And the barn raising is, you know, the grandmothers are sitting there understanding the whole time that the barn raising is a means to build the community too so it's working in all directions so i i love i love um i love ritual that is just based in well actually i mean in this design office right now where everything we do is need-based it's value-driven and need-based um all these things behind me here are all need-based but they're spectacular and when people interact with this stuff they're like god i want to change what i do for a living i hate doing stuff that doesn't matter. I hate spending my whole day doing stuff just for money, doing stuff I don't believe in. There's no ritual that comes out of that. You know, like I can remember working in those big corporate offices where the entire impetus that was setting, you know, basically you could have some client come into a big firm like that and say, you know what? I've been thinking, I want to destroy the world. Can you give me a proposal? I mean, when you're saying like, yeah, I want to build a big office park out west of here. Um, I want to take up about 300 acres and uh, I want to build all these things that are completely irrelevant uh, and just take up farmland and build over graves and village sites as if it doesn't matter. Who cares? Like that's actually happening. Totally. So there's nothing that comes out of that. That's really that's really worth it, except for one thing. Everyone, every every person who's working in that process, when they're giving it their attention, there's all these ways that they make beauty. I love appreciating mm. that. Even if the impetus and the consequence is bullshit, mm. um, it exhibits all of this care and attention that is actually village. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. And when you see that and you don't just rain scorn on people, but you like support them in the thing that they've been doing right as mm. part of a thing that is fundamentally mm. wrong, um, you have a chance to connect with people. Anyway, um, yeah, when we're when we're doing placemaking out in the streets, 
we're always leading by saying, you know, this is a place to inhabit. Like the reason you're doing this is to engage your kids and build a village sensibility. I mean, elicit it or help it flower in your children because it's being denied right now for the absence of these kinds of behaviors. So you're trying to create a unifying metaphor that activates everybody. And it's not about the thing you're painting. It's that everyone will now see each other differently and they'll start to do things together. Hopefully they'll challenge zoning that tells them they can't create livelihood where they live. Like, you know, what? All for me, all of this is a catalyst that leads to community banks, you know, a community infrastructure. Uh, let me just jump ahead. To me, my diagnosis <laughs> about how to make the world a better place fundamentally, of course, it's about restoring and renewing community infrastructure. But um, I think that our entire society is sick not so much because of what's happening at these other points of power, like in the halls of Congress, it's the abs it's, it's this fundamental paradox that we've submitted to. We agree to do all the work to power the society while we agree to be powerless. Mm -hmm. And that's just completely wrong and absurd. So if, this is how I think of it. If you look at the, the tree of life that we're part of in, you know, in terms of our culture, it's kind to me, it's, it looks like it's actually like a, some, some, some flowers that you, where you've cut off the base and you've stuck it in water and it's a beautiful flower. It's a beautiful bouquet, but actually it's dying before your eyes mm -hmm. for the absence of roots. Mm -hmm. And that's my diagnosis of the whole condition mm -hmm. of our system. Mm -hmm. All of this stuff is happening. that's dystopic up here as our culture is fundamentally dying and because it's, it's disconnected. And it's it's disconnected because of the absence of local cultures. And after all, democracy actually, it connotes local people being powerful. It's not just the whole, like, you know, state of Oregon is going to vote on abortion rights. No, that isn't even it. That's a larger scale of, of conversation. Democracy really begins at a level where you don't just vote, but you inhabit the, the results of your own mm -hmm. agency every day. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's what city repair is about. That's the repair. It's not the painting of streets. That's a catalyst toward the repair. Mm -hmm. um, that's a leverage point. Totally. Yeah. That's awesome. <clears throat> um, so what are, I guess, um, well, two things. First, I want to ask, like, what are some of the shortcomings of permaculture that you see and how are they being addressed within the permaculture community. And before you answer that, sort of one of my things is, you know, I really, um, there's like always outsiders criticizing things and oftentimes insiders that also have criticisms and are not really noticed from outsiders who are mostly criticizing, um, you know, the sort of large scale commercialization of something. So, you know, when somebody says permaculture, and you think spiral herb garden, right? Like that's not permaculture. That's just some weird thing. It's like, you know, if you say paleolithic diet and somebody thinks, you know, the candy bar that says paleo friendly at the grocery store, like none of those things are actually intrinsic to the ideas or the, the way where they came from or the people even involved deeply in those scenes or movements or whatever. And so I'm curious, like as a practitioner yourself, what are some of the shortcomings that you see and what are people actively doing to address those? within the, yeah. within the community. Well, you just, you just got all this stuff up on my <laughs> desktop. Um, well, I want to say in terms of my relationship to permaculture, my teachers were um, first Penny Livingston and Starhawk. 
And uh, Penny Livingston was the one that told me that, that pointed out to me how what we were doing was an application of, of permaculture um, where people are really enacting it upon themselves, but using the essential design patterns. And back then she was saying to me, um, you know, what's really, one thing that's really frustrating, this is an immediate answer to your question. One thing that was frustrating to her was that uh, while permaculture is very much about working with the way that change happens over time, and we call that succession, internally in the culture of permaculture, um, there's this, this tendency um, of especially like old, old males um, to fix on what they, what they think it is, what they've been saying it is, and kind of deny its ability to, to morph and change and grow. So like, I think, I think um, I've been one of the people really on an edge of, of uh, advancing the notion of social permaculture. Um, and, and especially in the context of urban permaculture, where everything has a social implication and an educational opportunity. Um, so at the same time, Penny was talking about how much resistance and how much scorn, uh, almost violence she's received um, as she's talked about how permaculture over the years, she's talked about how permaculture has this, these patterns can be applied in many different settings and not just in gardens and not just external systems, but they actually, um, you know, are, are patterns for designing almost anything in a village. Well, literally anything. So I think one of the contradictions is just it. And to me, it's, it's just natural. Like when I see greenwashing happening, um, I, I ex expect that. It's part of it's part of a process of transition. So I try to reach through the fog and relate to the people that are in there, you know, and I know that there are people in the greenwashing that are like, for them, the greenwashing is a strategy from within the system. So I know there's all these complexities and contradictions, and I know I can't see from all sides. So I try to be very, um, like, open minded about how how these larger transitions, local transitions are being affected. Okay, but here's one thing I really celebrate about permaculture where it's hard for me to imagine how much better it can get. It's seeking an integration of humanity with nature, not, not an integration, a reintegration, or, or actually a reawakening of our understanding of that essential relationship. Um, and so that's fucking rocks. And I'll take that with mm -hmm. me to the grave. Mm -hmm. um, that's my bet. That's why I'm involved. Mm -hmm. And the proof for me of why how permaculture does rock is I've never met any people who are so affirmational. Like the, the ego drops a lot further where people are able to just like receive each other and celebrate each other and thank each other. It's not fake at all. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying there's not ego. Jesus, there's there's definitely people who are, <laughs> you know, dysfunctional in all this, mm -hmm. but there's people that are dysfunctional everywhere. And there's there's people with Asperger's in the mix and there's autistic people. There's children, you know, there's children that are like taking this on and like running with it. It's all kinds of people involved. And, you know, you, hell yes, there's, uh, you know, pr older generation, so-called pioneer species, prickly males <laughs> who talk more than they listen and get in their own way and hurt people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But 
to me, what, what's beautiful about permaculture, when you really understand it, I think, and I think that I, I do now, I think I grasp it uh, with plenty of room to grow, knowing I don't really understand it. And I'm just trying to figure it out all the time. Like that helps me do better um, is that it's all about growing and changing and learning. So that's that makes it fine for me that we have any local contradictions. I do want to name something, though. Famously, there are people who say, well, you know, Mollison and Holmgren were just going around appropriating from people. Um, and I don't know the actual truth of that, but I do know that in my own case of, of you know, coming into proximity of resilient patterns, the lock and owner were just like, man, we are here as long as we can to help anybody who's trying to make a difference. So please run with this. You know, and it wasn't just like that. It wasn't just, it wasn't just take what we are, what we have. It was when I was asking all these questions, at one point somebody said, okay, you're not going to understand anything I'm saying because you're so afraid of what I think of you. And I was like, I mean, it's like you pulled up my dress or something. And he's like, and I, but it was exactly what I was there to hear. He's like, mm. you are so afraid you cannot even taste the food you put in your mouth. You can't see where you are. You can't feel. You can't touch where you are. Your senses have all been blunted and you're divided. And I was like, tell me more. Tell me more. <laughs> like my ears were like 10 mm. times bigger. It's like, please tell me what you see. He's like, again, you're not going to understand me. You're not going to understand me because you don't know the story. He's like, go home and stand in the middle of a street intersection and see that all the lines are long and straight and flat. And then walk a block and see that it's the same. And then go to another town and see that it's the same. And then realize you're within a gigantic, violently imposed system and, and then this, ask yourself, when did your family come into contact with those lines? Mm. Because the answer to that question is who you are. That, that answer is the last time your people had a choice. And then you'll know who you are. And once you feel that, oh, Peter, this is what happened. He's like, once you feel that, you're going to feel all these things. You're going to feel all this sadness and rage and then he literally went like this you're gonna feel like this and he goes <laughs> he's like and i was mild version like he was screaming at the top of his lungs you could hear him across the forest he's like and then you got to create out of that you know like everybody's still alive in you all these ancestors are still in you you got to you got to heal the world with that, you know, and then he said this, he's like, so all this, all these problems are going on. Look at all these problems. And he's like, yeah, but then look at this side. He's like, now see that we're on a floating garden in the middle of empty space. And it's all a miracle. And all the promises that were ever made are still here to be kept. He's like, keep that in mind. And feel all of it at once, but create. Hmm. Yeah. It's a lot to remember. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. Mm -hmm. 
I don't even know if I answered the question. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. I think, um, well, it, it makes me think of, I have a lot of things I'm, that are swimming around in my head right now. One is, you know, when I took my permaculture design course with Toby Hemingway, it was really cool to see the way he designed his course was there were a lot of guest teachers. So, you know, every weekend there were like three or four different permaculture practitioners coming in and lecturing and stuff. Um, and it was cool to sort of see the breadth of different people's perspectives on it. Um, and then his own framing, which was, you know, his, the very first lecture in his class was how civilization, how, how permaculture can't save civilization, but it can save humanity. And then kind of going into what civilization was. And I always really, I think Toby, um, you know, I, I think that was a unique thing that he added to that, to that mix of sort of understanding the implications of permaculture is about building resilience, but civilization itself is a construct that isn't about that. <laughs> um, and so when I think about everything that, that we do, you know, both, even, you know, um, is, is essentially not in an effort to work within a system and transform it, but to create the thing that's coming next, you know? Um, and, and so in a sense, like you, you mentioned the term retrofit, which I learned also from, um, uh, Hazel Ward during that permaculture class and, you know, taking the infrastructure that we have now and retrofitting it in a way that helps us live more aligned with wildness or, you know, deeper connection to place. And, um, that retrofitting is in a sense kind of preparing or, or laying the groundwork for when the larger systemic impositions that exist today fade away and we can do more of what we're already doing more and more and more of what we're already doing. Um, and to me, that's just like super hopeful. And, and I really appreciate this sort of, um, you know, this sort of walking the line of like, we exist in this world today. You know, the example that you use with your hand, you know, um, on the one hand, it's like terrible. On the other hand, we're still like in this great place and we have to create the world that we want, or at least try to, um, yeah, I don't know. I... Well, I got a couple thoughts. Um, first to anybody who's just frustrated with the system and wants everyone to just change instantly. I definitely relate to the so-called black clad anarchist from Eugene impetus or impulse. Um, I'm so frustrated. I want everything to change now. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's very difficult to walk around seeing all of these contradictions and feeling like, you know, some of us are zombies and the rest of us are sleepwalking and some of us feel awake and uh, yeah. But then when I'm humble, I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an asshole. And, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, and I don't know what the fuck I'm saying. And a lot of people know a lot better than me and they're really great with their children. And so, yeah. Um, okay. So I don't really believe in painting intersections and yet I do it because it's one of the best things that I can do to have this effect that I do believe in. Um, I, I, on one hand, okay, first of all, I'm remembering something from uh, Sybil Maholi Naj. She wrote the book, The Matrix of Man, which is a feminist, and it's really the only comprehensive um, study of the colonial grid that I know of that traces it from its earliest origins that we can discern um, from the Assyrian empire uh, up through to where we are in the Western hemisphere. 
and uh, brilliant. But one of her, um, one of the aerial photos she has in there, you can find it online. It's an aerial view of Timgad in Algeria, and it was a Roman settlement. Um, so this is about transitioning and coming back to the village and Toby's quote about not being able to save civilization, but save humanity. So Timgad is this amazing, it's like frozen in time. You can see that 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 exact same quote played out physically. So Timgad, what, what Sibyl Maholi Nas says about this is like, it's amazing when you look at Timgad after the fall of the empire, how the people who had been forced to build it, to abandon their villages, they were forced to build Timgad. And yet here it was with all this ready-made municipal infrastructure, aqueducts and sewage systems, all these buildings and places like, and yet look to the South, they utterly abandoned Timgad and started to mine it to recreate of the village that was actually responsive and an expression of who they are, not an imposed system. You know, so some people would say, well, the grid's already built. Come on, let's just, yeah. And other people would be like, but these were the murderers of our people. Mm -hmm. And some people would be like, yeah, but it's shelter. And other people would be like, yeah, but it, it actually discourages us from talking. And it's all these planes, like who builds long, straight, flat planes except invaders? Mm -hmm. So they mined the shit and built, rebuilt their village. And Amazing. you can see that in the aerial view of Timgad. So it's like what Toby could also have been saying was we can't even identify with civil. It's like when I, when you say civilization, let's be clear, like civilization is like a civil engineer building civil infrastructure and civil infrastructure is both social. It's the regimentation and stratification of the society into working classes and ownership classes and, you know, dominant patterns of culture. Um, that's civilizing. It's not like people getting along and having rules and democracy. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's very different than that. Totally. So in Timgad, they were re rejecting the civil civil design of their culture and they were returning to culture, a culture of consent, a culture of nurturing, of an emphasis on like an integration with nature and life-affirming symbols to reject, you know, the the crazy craven um like religiosity of 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 empires and temples and priesthoods and bullshit like that and returning in so many ways to their own self-determination so that's what toby was meaning that's what can be saved that's what permaculture is trying to do you 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 tend to want to reject bullshit when you involve yourself with permaculture mm -hmm. <laughs> awesome um to kind of wrap it up, I would love to hear, um, you know, I think probably most of my listeners, I imagine, live in a city. I'm sure there's lots of people who live in the woods, but, you know, regular listeners are going to have access to the grid and all the things. And I know a lot of us are, I don't like to use the word trapped, um, but in a sense, we're trapped, like socially, socially, economically limited in our, in our ability to be mobile and to move to some place that is less populated or you know, like for instance, me, I live in the city, my whole family here, my social networks here, the idea of people saying to me, well, why don't you just go move to the wilderness? That's just an absurdity. I have to rewild where I'm at and I don't have the option to really go somewhere else. 
Um, otherwise that would be abandoning the aspects of my humanity that form my humanity, which is my community, right? So I'm not going to abandon my community. That is a form of my own wildness. It's not just about, um, you know, habitat in that sense. So I like to, you know, while I also talk to and interview people that are into hunting and gathering in the wilderness and stuff like that, I'm also trying to equally balance it with ways of integrating rewilding in an urban context. And I think permaculture is one of the best tools to do that. And so I'm curious if you have, you know, three or four tips on people living in the city on how to begin to engage in more placemaking, more permaculture, more retrofitting of our environment here. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think um, first thing in my mind is just that if there's if there if if I do have a critique of the way I see people um, employing permaculture or deploying it, it's that they tend to focus on human needs and less on uh, integrating environments for um, other species, native species. So in in every kind of design, in every kind of you know, habitat, whether it's your home or out in the streets where people are reconsidering the right of way and making it into a more of a continuum of life, especially in Portland, Oregon, um, people should be emphasizing, uh, emphasizing habitat for birds and bees and, you know, mammals, um, insects. And so, you know, as you're reconsidering that environment out there, I just want to focus on that because because everybody can do this stuff in your yard. You know, when people are disconnecting downspouts, you can put that into a rain garden that then is capturing water and remediating it locally so it doesn't flush effluent from the surface of streets out into the waterway and all this stuff that that most Portlanders have become pretty well versed at now. Um, so you can do that on your own land. Even if you're a renter, there's a whole lot of things that you can do. On the north side of, of any building, you can put in amazing shade gardens that have marvelous ecological benefits. Um, there's wonderful, absurdly beautiful and hilarious things that you can do, you know, in terms of how you like might might made some make some sort of bird feeder, some sculptural feature that is artistic and, and makes people stop and pay attention and notice they're alive while you're doing something wonderful for for a bird or something or a butterfly. There's so many ways that you can engender beauty, which causes people to stop and feel things while you're also trying to support other species, but particularly when you're doing it out in the streets. So this is something I'm going to be working on this year to help Portlanders realize that we basically have all the policies that we need to utterly transform Portland in a way that inspires the transformation of the rest of the world. Okay, so every freaking intersection in every single neighborhood and there's like uh, 6,000 of them, I believe. No, no, no. There's like 17,000 residential intersections. All of them are available for you to transform for free. As many as you can possibly do in, in your lifetime. And now, because of policies that we've managed to pass collaboratively with the City Council of Portland and the Department of Transportation, every connecting street to every intersection in every single neighborhood is available for people to be able to do all sorts of projects along the edges and to literally, if you want to make that into a giant creative, you know, painting palette, you can do that too. The entirety of a neighborhood, except for its commercial perimeters can be transformed. And 
there's a lot of amazing benefits to doing that. But those the, the spaces in front of your homes, between your property line and the sidewalk, there's usually a foot or two or even as many as four feet. I believe that's called the frontage strip. strip. And the furnishing zone between the sidewalk and the street, which can be two feet wide to sometimes 10 or 12 feet wide in Portland. All kinds of things can happen out there. And lots of people are already out there planting, you know, these various like ecologically supportive landscape designs or permaculture designs, but you can be putting benches and kiosks, solar powered kiosks, all kinds of interactive and functional things that can be put out there that basically can be little models of how you of how you demonstrate the reintegration of human space and human presence with nature. Um, so that's 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 what is really available for everyone in the city to do. And the beautiful thing about doing it in the streets is that it might just be you and your family or a few kids and a couple of families or something, but then thousands of people that go by it every day see the statement that you've made. And it, if you do it beautifully, it inspires them to, to do that where they live in their own way. Mm -hmm. So all this diverse expression that is artistic and basically living starts to happen um, to transform the benign, ordinary spaces of the city. And when that happens, all these other, the, this is this is basically how you affect systemic change on a grassroots level. You subvert the street into a commons. You transform it back into the commons it should always have been. And then all these villagers wake up who are traveling through the space, going back to their communities, bringing those, the seeds of that inspiration. They talk about it on the internet, but they also travel from city to city. And that local action is what transforms the entire ecology of um, the political, economic, and class system. And, you know, it's it's not going to be perfect. Like, there's all these people who are going to be like, no, they must die. Butterfly <laughs> gardens in the street, you, we must, they, they must die. They're starting to sing songs again. You know, where they people from blocks around all know the same song. We have to kill them for sure. You know, but then some of the peers of those folks um, are like, wait, they're having a lot of fun and we are invited. Uh, maybe like, and I went to one of their parties and they've got great like dip, you know, with their chips. I mean, whatever the story <laughs> yeah. comes back, like yeah. once rich people start to realize that they are invited and that, that other people are having more fun than them. Like I'm, I'm actually quite serious. I think most of the wealthy people that I've known throughout the impressed in the, the imposed context, are miserable. They're like their own worst victims in, in so many ways, divorced from themselves. Like, no, I must have more, more, you know, like this emptiness growing inside. No, I must deny all of history and keep everyone confused. Like how unhappy, how happy would you ever be while you're trying to control history and you know you're destroying the world? So yeah, yeah, their gig is usually let's kill, let's kill them. But Maybe, maybe we're at a place where we can actually transcend that somehow. Anyway, that's, well, that's we can hope. help. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Cool. Are there in any... the meantime, <laughs> in the meantime, we get to fulfill ourselves, right? Events like, uh, like rewilds echoes in time are where you get to just be like, Oh my God, I can love this much and I can feel this much. So even as we are struggling in the great, in the great struggle, we get to be in our own bodies and be in love with life. Awesome. 
Well, thank you, Mark, for coming on the Rewilding Podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Peter. So great to spend time with you. Yeah, you too. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rewilding Podcast. Check out the show notes to connect with my guests for a list of resources that we mentioned during our conversation. If this episode inspired you, made you think more deeply, or gave you some new tools to use, make sure to subscribe and become a patron at patreon.com slash Bauer. If you're new to rewilding and want to expand your perception of it, I recommend attending one of my Rewilding 101 workshops, which I offer both in person in Portland, Oregon, and online via Zoom for those who live around the world. You can check upcoming dates and register at rewildportland.com. Thanks for listening.